Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 61 of the show, and it is a good one for you. Uh, got some PGA Tour golf to recap. It was a good tournament this past weekend, and just an absolutely legendary weekend of NFL football to go over with the divisional playoffs going down. Best weekend of football I've seen uh, in a long time. So we'll get into all that in-depth recap of all those games, plus a preview of the conference championships. Then, of course, we'll do a standings update in the NHL and the NBA and uh, maybe some college basketball as well. But we're going to start off in the PGA Tour. And this past weekend's tournament was the American Express. This tournament uh, was the first tournament back on mainland United States after spending two weeks in Hawaii. Um, this tournament uh, was held in La Quinta, California, which is in the greater Los Angeles area, and southeast of Los Angeles. And they used three courses for this tournament. It was the La Quinta Country Club, which was a par 72 distance with 7,060 yards. And then two courses at the PGA West Golf Course, which the Nicholas Tournament Course was a par 72 distance, 7,159 yards. And then the PGA West Stadium Course, which was also a par 72 distance with 7,113 yards. And the way that it worked was that each pro was grouped with uh, – some amateurs. It was a pro-am for the first three rounds. And then the low 65 pros made the final round. And the final round was on Sunday. That was at the stadium course. Uh, but in the first three rounds, every pro and amateur played all three courses to make it fair. And then cuts were made after the third round instead of the second round. And, uh, then we had our final round on Sunday, and it was a great field. A lot of a lot of big name golfers. Uh, John Rahm was out there. Patrick Cantlay, um, Will Zalatoris made his season debut. Um, you had uh, Justin Rose, uh, Abraham Answer, Tony Finau. You know Patrick Reed. So there was there was some pretty good firepower. Uh, Ricky Fowler was out there. Uh, you know pretty good uh, firepower for this. For this tournament, uh, which you know was first one back back in the mainland United States, like I said, uh, but in the end, your winner was Hudson Swafford with a score of twenty three under par. Uh, he led the field in strokes gained putting and was just ridiculous with the putter all weekend. It was his third career PGA Tour victory, his second victory here at the American Express. So two of his three wins on tour have been here at the American Express. Uh, he also won this event five years ago. So uh, he definitely has a knack for this course. Uh, he got stronger as the tournament went on, really. Um, he started out just two under 
with a 70, and by the time we got to round four, he shot an eight under 64. Uh, was just unbelievable on Sunday with the putter. So he was your winner by two shots over Tom Hoagie, who shot 21 under par. Uh, Hoagie put together rounds of 65, 66, and then a pair of four under 68s to close out. And then Brian Harmon, Lanto Griffin, and Lee Hodges all tied for third at 20 under par, which was three shots back of Swafford. Now, Harmon, he shot eight under on Sunday, and it was a bogey-free round. He went three under on the front nine and a ridiculous five under on the back nine. Looked really good. Uh, Harmon's one of those guys that uh, he'll pop up every now and then, these random tournaments, and uh, he'll, he'll get his name up there. Lanto Griffin, he seems to play in pretty much every tournament. And then Lee Hodges, uh, didn't know really anything about him until uh, this tournament, but he came out, uh, Lee Hodges did, in that round one, shot 10 under. Just an unbelievable round of 62, and uh, kind of really paced himself from there. Shot an even par in round two, but uh, Will Zalatoris, Denny McCarthy, and Francesco Molinari finished T6 all at 19 under par. So that was four shots back of Swafford. But uh, all in all, it was a good tournament. Uh, this was the first of, I think, three consecutive events uh, in California, the, the second of which is this upcoming weekend, uh, which is the Farmers Insurance Open, which is held at Torrey Pines. Now, Torrey Pines, they use two courses. It's the North Course and the South Course. Uh, Torrey Pines is located... Uh, in San Diego, California, or La Jolla, California, just north of San Diego. But uh, the two courses, they're both a par 72. The north course is 7,258 yards, and the south course is 7,765 yards. So about 510 yards longer on the south course. So all of the golfers are going to play one round. Um, they're For the the first two rounds, they're going to play both courses. Then they'll have the 36-hole the cut like normal. And then the final two rounds are going to be played both on the south course. So there's going to be a lot of south course uh, action this weekend. Now the format, uh, this one is a Wednesday through Saturday tournament uh, instead of your normal Thursday through Sunday. So we'll get started uh, this Wednesday, which is January 26th, and we'll conclude on Saturday, January 29th. So it's a little different. It's about a, a day sooner than, than we're used to seeing golf. But uh, nonetheless, it's a loaded field. Six of the top golfers in the world are going to be out there. It'll be John Rahm, Justin Thomas, Xander Shoffley, Bryson DeChambeau, Hideki Matsuyama, Brooks Kepka, Patrick Reed, Jordan Spieth, you know, a lot of a lot of big name players out there. Now keep in mind, uh, Patrick Reed won this Farmers Insurance Open here at Torrey Pines last year. But Torrey Pines was also the site of the US Open this past summer. And that major championship was won by John Rahm. His capture his first major championship. So um, those guys are both in the field here again this week at the Farmers Insurance Open. Uh, I would certainly, both of them played uh, fairly well last week. Uh, Rom played better than Reed did, but uh, both made the cut. Both played uh, fairly decent golf. But uh, it's going to be a, you know, Torrey Pines is always fun to watch. It's always very challenging, especially that south course with the distance. Uh, so I did actually uh, watch quite a bit of the American Express over the weekend on Saturday and Sunday uh, in between football games and commercial breaks. So I was able to catch... Uh, a lot of that on Saturday and Sunday, but I'll certainly be tuned into as much uh, of 
the farmer's insurance open as possible, especially that final round with it being on Saturday. So if you're looking for a, a good weekend to golf with a lot of top golfers out there, tune into the PGA Tour this weekend. But we'll move on to the National Football League, and how can we not after that just unbelievable weekend of divisional round football? All four games were amazing. Uh, three of them were decided on last-second field goals. The other one went into overtime and was one on a touchdown on the first possession. We'll get into all of that. We'll start off on Saturday. Saturday's games featured both of the number one seeds. Uh, the first one was the AFC. It was number four, Cincinnati, traveling to Nashville to take on the number one-seeded Tennessee Titans. And Titans, of course, had a bye week. Uh, the week before in the wild card round did not play. And uh, the Bengals and the Titans did not play each other in the regular season, so this was the first time that they had seen each other. The Titans had Derrick Henry back in the lineup. He was uh, running away with the MVP in the rushing title before he got hurt in Week 8. So this was Henry's first game back since Week 8, and it was actually the first time since Week 6 that the Titans had Derrick Henry, A.J. Brown, and Julio Jones all healthy and playing. And it was a good game, fairly close uh, all the way through. Uh, Tennessee uh, was down at the half. Cincinnati kicked three field goals in that first half to be up 9-6 at halftime. And second half, uh, Tennessee put together a good third quarter, scored 10 points to tie it. And uh, the only scoring that we had in the fourth quarter was game-winning field goal as time expired by Evan McPherson, who had kicked four field goals uh, in that game. Just unbelievable. The game winner was a 52-yarder, so it was not a gimme by any means. And uh, the story of this one, though, was Ryan Tannehill and his interceptions. He had three of them. His first pass of the game was picked off. His first pass of the second half was picked off. And then uh, late in the fourth quarter, with about 20 seconds left, he threw an interception. It was deflected, uh, it hit off his receiver's hands. Eli Apple made a great play on the ball to pop it up, and it was intercepted. And uh, two plays later, the Bengals were in field goal range, enough for McPherson to drive one home. Um, it was just simply an incredible game, just a weird turn of events there. To, the Titans had nine sacks. They got to Joe Burrow nine times. And Jeffrey Simmons had three of those nine sacks. He was a beast, just could not be dealt with. And the Bengals still found a way to win. Now, the box score for this game, Joe Burrow was 28 of 37 for 348 yards, did not throw a touchdown, and he did have one interception. Now, that interception, it was his first since week 13. And the play itself, he was looking to throw a little pass to Samaje Pirine out of the backfield. It hit off of Pirine's hands, kind of popped up, and uh, as it was falling, the Titans defensive back uh, kind of dove for it and grabbed it as it was hitting the ground. So they reviewed it for quite a while. It was about a five to seven minute review, and uh, they ended up deeming that he had possession simultaneously with it hitting the ground. So the call stood. So it wasn't even like it was a bad pass by Joe Burrow per se. Uh, it was kind of a weird deflected interceptions. But either way, that was his first since week 13. So Burrow had almost 350 yards passing. Joe Mixon had 14 carries for 54 yards and a touchdown. And then rookie Jamar Chase had five catches for 109 yards, which made him the first rookie in NFL history 
to have multiple 100-yard receiving games in the postseason. Uh, the guy just continues to dominate uh, on the Titans' side. The only stat really of note was A.J. Brown had five catches for 142 yards, and uh, their uh, touchdown there in the third quarter that um, was a was a real beauty, kind of a one-handed catch. Uh, great pass by Tannehill, great better catch by, by Brown. But uh, this was Cincinnati. They ended up winning 19-16. It was their first road playoff win in franchise history. So uh, unbelievable that they've never won on the road in the postseason. And this is their this will send them to their first AFC championship game since 1988. So that's how we got things kicked off. Uh, I did pick Cincinnati to win that game, so I did get that pick right. Uh, the nightcap was the NFC's number one seed, the Green Bay Packers. They hosted the number six seed, San Francisco 49ers. Uh, fresh off of their uh, upset win in Dallas in the wild card round. This game, of course, was at Lambeau Field. It was at night. Freezing temperatures. I think the game time temperature was uh, 12 degrees with a feels-like temperature of zero. Uh, it snowed the entire second half. Now, of course, these two teams, they met back in week three. The game was in San Francisco, and Green Bay had won that one 30-28. Uh, to 28. Aaron Rodgers came into this thing 0-3 against the 49ers in his career in the playoffs, so uh, he was looking to to break that streak. It was a really sloppy game. Uh, did not get much going. The Packers did manage to uh, score relatively early in this one, uh, and that was pretty much all she wrote for the scoring, per se, um, in the first, that was it for the first half. Uh, Green Bay scored uh, on their opening drive, went up seven nothing, and that was it for the first half. Jimmy Garoppolo for the 49ers didn't even complete his first pass of the game until there was six minutes left in the second quarter. So, uh, just to show you, it was kind of a a ground and pound game. Um, uh, San Francisco did get uh, a field goal in the third quarter there to make it a 7-3 game, and then that's when uh, they did block a field goal at the end of the first half, the 49ers did, which was turned out to be absolutely huge. Uh, later in the second half, in the fourth quarter, I guess, this is where the game changed, and uh, it was San Francisco blocking a Green Bay punt from their end zone, which um, the ball kind of rolled out to the five-yard line, scooped up for a touchdown. That put... Uh, Pretty much a clamp on that one. Um, the 49ers went up in that game, and Mason Crosby kicked a field goal to tie it. And uh, later in the game, San Francisco took a long possession. Um, I'm sorry, that the Crosby field goal was early in the fourth quarter to put Green Bay up 10-3. to Then the punt block happened. It was six yards, returned for a six-yard touchdown. And then uh, San Francisco took a long drive, methodical drive down the field and uh, ended up kicking a game-winning field goal in that one uh, with four seconds left, uh, same as the Cincinnati game for San Francisco to win. So San Francisco ended up winning the game 13-10. to Just an unbelievable scene there in the snow. Uh, Green Bay just could not get anything going. Um, Jimmy Garoppolo was 11 of 19 for only 131 yards, no touchdowns, had an interception. San Francisco's only 
scoring drive or only scoring play uh, outside of the two field goals was that punt block touchdown. They did nothing on offense. Debo Samuel still uh, was a factor. He had 10 carries for 39 yards and three catches for 44 yards. He also had two kickoff returns for 59 yards, one of which was 45 yards. That kind of gave him some good field position there in the second half. And then on the Green Bay side, Rodgers was 20 of 29 for 225 yards. Uh, Aaron Jones had 41 yards on 12 carries to go with nine catches and 129 yards, including that big 75-yarder there. Uh, I believe it was in the first half that set up that field goal attempt that was blocked. So, um, you know, just um, kind of a weird game. Uh, 49ers proving to be legit. Of course, they knocked off Dallas. Then they knocked off Green Bay. So they are going to the NFC title game for, I think, the fifth time since 2011. Now, this was actually both number one seeds losing. It was the first time since 2010 that both number one seeds have lost in the divisional round of the playoffs. And it was also the first day in NFL playoff history with multiple game-winning field goals as time expired. Well, that trend continued into Sunday. The first game on Sunday was in the NFC. The number four Los Angeles Rams traveled to Tampa Bay to take on the number two Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, This game was at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. The two teams had played back in Los Angeles week three, and the Rams won that one 34-24. But uh, as I spoke about last week, these two teams are much different than they were last week. Uh, or, you know, the last time they met earlier this year, um, you know, Tampa Bay had gotten worse uh, talent-wise with the loss of Godwin and Brown, and uh, the Rams had gotten better by adding Odell Beckham and Vaughn Miller, uh, completely going all in on this year. Now, the the Buccaneers did get Leonard Fournette back into their lineup, which was huge. He ended up uh, with two touchdowns, but they did not have their all-pro offensive tackle, Tristan Wirfs, on that right side, which turned out to be the bigger issue of the bunch because Tom Brady was pressured on 30% of his dropbacks, which was the highest amount of pressures in his playoff career. So, and he's played in quite a few playoff games, never been pressured that many times. Uh, Aaron Donald, Vaughn Miller both had a sack. Uh, Vaughn Miller actually had a strip sack, recovered the fumble. But the Rams, they got up 27 to 3 at one point there in the third quarter. It was 27 to 3, and then they just tried to give it away. Uh, they Cam Akers, uh, right before the first half ended, actually, Cam Akers had one of his two fumbles at the one-yard line, uh, kind of got hit, ball came out as he was kind of tumbling forward. San Francisco recovered, I mean, uh, Los Angeles recovered, and, um, or I'm sorry, uh, Tampa Bay recovered, and uh, that ended the first half. So that if they'd have scored there, that would have put them up 27-3 at half, but instead it's a fumble goes to Tampa Bay, and they end the half. And then about with two and a half minutes left, uh, the, the Buccaneers did a great job coming back. Never count out Tom Brady. Uh, Akers fumbled again with two and a half minutes left. And uh, the Rams were only up by a touchdown at the time. It was on the 30-yard line. So gave the Bucks great field position. Like I said, it just seemed like the Rams were trying to give the game away. Uh, Tampa Bay took it 30 yards, 29 yards down the field. They had a fourth and one. Uh, fourth and goal from the one, and Fournette ran it in for the touchdown with 42 seconds left to tie it. So it was 27 all. Then on the kickoff, uh, after the kickoff got 
you know, touchback. Matt Stafford threw two passes to Cooper Cup, one for 20 yards and then a bomb for 44 yards in which Cooper Cup got behind everyone. Uh, Tampa was playing a basically cover zero all-out blitz, which allowed Cup to go straight up the middle of the field, got behind everybody, and uh, just Stafford just dropped it in there. 44-yard pass, got him in field goal range, and uh, again with four seconds left, same as the first two games of the playoffs, uh, it was uh, Matt Gay field goal to win it. So the Rams beat the Buccaneers 30-27 to in just a wild, wild game. And believe it or not, I thought this was very interesting. This was Tom Brady's first ever career playoff loss as time expired. Uh, he hadn't done a whole lot of losing in the playoffs, uh, but when he does, or when he has, it has not been at the last second. So uh, the box score in this one, Matt Stafford uh, proven to be just a playoff machine. He was 28 of 38 for 366 yards, two touchdowns. Cooper Cup led the way, nine catches, 183 yards, and a touchdown. And then on the Tampa Bay side, Tom Brady, he threw 54 passes, which I don't believe was probably in their game plan of how they wanted to do that. But he completed 30 of 54 for 329 yards, had a touchdown and an interception. And then Leonard Fournette, big get back into the lineup there, 13 carries for 51 yards, two touchdowns. And then Mike Evans had eight catches for 119 yards and a touchdown, including a 55-yard bomb that he scored on. He beat Jalen Ramsey clean, uh, but just uh, kind of a shocking turn of events. And this, based on the postgame comments and everything, this is quite possibly Tom Brady's last career game. We'll have to see on that. But So up to this point, all three of the games were decided on a walk-off game-winning field goal uh, that started with four seconds left. It's kind of a weird anomaly there, but uh, that brings us to the Sunday night game in the AFC. The number three Buffalo Bills traveled to Arrowhead to take on the number two Kansas City Chiefs. Um, back, I picked the Rams to beat the Bucks, and uh, they did, so I was correct on that. Um, I had picked the Packers to beat the 49ers, so I was incorrect on that. So I'm sitting at 2-1 and one at this point in the divisional round. Um, I did pick Buffalo to win this game, and uh, these two teams met back in week five. game was at Arrowhead, and the Bills ended up winning that one 30-28 and just a complete dominating performance. Um, now, coming into this weekend, this was the best matchup on paper, and not only was it that, it turned out to be one of the best, if not the very best, football game that I have ever seen. Uh, the opening drive, the Bills actually converted two fourth down plays, one of which was for a touchdown. Uh, so that made them the first playoff team in the last 20 years to convert two fourth downs on the opening drive. Uh, the game was close the entire way, back and forth. Then we got to the two-minute warning. So at this particular point... Um, Buffalo was was trailing uh, at the two minute warning. They were down uh, twenty six to twenty one. Well, Buffalo ended up uh, with just under two minutes. So the minute fifty four left, Buffalo had completed a seventeen play drive that spanned seven minutes, and uh, Josh Allen hit Gabe Davis for a twenty seven yard touchdown. Uh, they did get the two-point conversion by Stefan Diggs. Just an unbelievable catch in the back of the end zone. Body was going one way. He stretched his arms out the other way, hauled it in. That gave Buffalo a three-point lead. They were up 29-26. Well, 
52 seconds later, uh, the Chiefs tied it on a 64-yard, or they, they took the lead. Uh, 52 seconds later, with a minute two left, Tyreek Hill scored on a 64-yard pass, uh, kind of busted coverage on the on the Bills' part, but uh, the extra point made it 33-29 Kansas City, a four-point lead with a minute two left. So the Bills take it down. They use uh, they go six plays, 75 yards, take up 49 seconds, uh, which left 13 seconds on the clock when Josh Allen found Gabriel Davis again for a 19-yard touchdown pass. The extra point put the Bills up 36 to 33 with 13 seconds left. Well, they kick off. The kick goes into the end zone for a touchback instead of kicking it and letting him return it to kill a few seconds off the clock. Patrick Mahomes needs two plays uh, to go 44 yards and get the, the Chiefs into field goal range. He hit Tyreek Hill on one play, Travis Kelsey on another, and that set up a Harrison Butker 49-yard field goal as time expired to tie the game. Send it to overtime at 36-36. The coin toss. Josh Allen called tails. It was heads. The Chiefs won the coin toss. They put together an eight-play, 75-yard drive that took only four minutes before Mahomes found Travis Kelsey for the game-winning touchdown. Another spectacular catch there. Uh, just absolute insanity in that last minute and 54 seconds of regulation. There were three lead changes, one tie, and there were 25 points scored in the final minute 54. Uh, Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, they combined for 221 yards passing, three touchdowns in that little time span. And just uh, what an unbelievable game. Now, the coin toss, I mentioned that Kansas City won it. You know, the NFL overtime rule is such that the team that wins the toss can get the ball. If they score a touchdown, it's over. But if they kick a field goal, uh, the other team has a chance to put a drive together. There's been a lot of talk about changing that rule specifically for the playoffs. Uh, because if it, basically this coin toss determined who won the game. Uh, because the way that they had just played that last two minutes of the fourth quarter, uh, whoever won the coin toss was winning the game. And that was pretty clear. So uh, I think if the Bills would have won the coin toss, they certainly would have won the game. Uh, I'm not a huge proponent of changing the overtime rule. Um, I, know I certainly don't like the college football rule where they start on the 25, each team gets a possession. That kind of seems a little tedious. Defeats the purpose of sudden death. Um, you know, if you want to you wanna give both teams a possession in overtime, uh, I get it. But, you know, the NFL is such that you have 60 minutes to stop them, you know, and you don't score, except Buffalo last week in the wild card round, you don't score on every drive. Um, that's just something that does not happen. You have your chance to go play defense. Um, so I, I do think the coin toss did cost the Bills the win. But, I mean, that's kind of how football goes. Uh, but just an unbelievable record-setting performance for Gabriel Davis. He had eight catches for 201 yards and four touchdowns. That uh, is a postseason NFL record, four touchdowns. Um, Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, just simply incredible. Mahomes was 33 of 44 for 378 yards, three touchdowns, no turnovers. Allen uh, was 27 of 37 for 329 yards, four touchdowns. Both quarterbacks had over 60 yards on the ground. Allen had 68 on 11 carries. Mahomes had 69 on seven carries with a touchdown. 
just simply incredible. Tyreek Hill had 11 catches for 150 touchdown. Kelsey, 8 for 96 and a touchdown. So you could see just the stars came out for this one. It was uh, really, really just an incredible game. And Mahomes and Allen both had over 300 yards passing, three passing touchdowns, and 50-plus rushing yards with zero turnovers, which was the first time in NFL history that opposing quarterbacks have done that, regular season or postseason. So it was just simply an amazing performance by both quarterbacks. This win sends Kansas City to their fourth straight AFC Conference Championship, all of which have been at home. The last team uh, to do anything close was the 2004, uh, 2002 to 2004 Philadelphia Eagles who hosted the AFC, or NFC Conference Championship three consecutive years. So this is the most consecutive years that a team has hosted a conference championship in NFL history with four. And, oh, yeah, by the way, those those Eagles teams from 2002 to 2004, they were also coached by Andy Reid, who is the current Chiefs head coach. So just uh, simply an incredible performance uh, by the by both teams there. I think uh, that was pretty much going to be the best game of the year. I, I don't see the last three games of the year being better than that one, but um, yeah, just really, really ridiculous performance there. All around the divisional round of the playoffs was simply fantastic, uh, unbelievable. Um, I I did go 2-2 two and two in my predictions for the divisional round, so that brings, uh, after going 5-1 and one in the wild card round, that brings my total picks record to seven and three for the first two rounds. But that brings us to the conference championship matchups, which are this upcoming weekend. Uh, two games here, the winner of each will go to Super Bowl, which will be held at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. Now, this is the first time in 12 years that the conference championships will be played without either Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. So it's been a long time since we've made it to this point in the season without seeing either one of those faces, but uh, such is the case. And as I mentioned with Tom Brady, it is quite possible that he will retire uh, over the summer. And Aaron Rodgers, that whole saga, who knows what's going to happen with that. Um, He's a free agent to be. Is he going to re-sign with Green Bay? Uh, He's come out and said that he wants to play for a contender. He does not want to be part of a rebuild. Uh, I don't know what his other options are around the league where he could reasonably go and be a contender. I think Green Bay is probably his his best spot as of right now. Uh, I think him and Devontae Adams will probably be a package deal since he's a free agent as well. So stay tuned on that. So those two quarterbacks, uh, definitely a lot to follow there in the offseason. But uh, the conference championship preview uh, in the American Football Conference, that game is at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern on Sunday. It's on CBS. It's number four, Cincinnati, going to Arrowhead to take on the number two, Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, These two teams actually just played a few weeks ago uh, in week 17. The game was in Cincinnati, uh, and Cincinnati came out on top 34-31. to Now you say, oh, okay, well, they were resting people. No, neither team rested anybody. Uh, Both of the teams had a lot on the line in this game. Uh, The Chiefs were fighting for the number one seed in the AFC and needed a win to secure that, whereas uh, Cincinnati was fighting for that uh, AFC North division title. So they needed a a win to clinch that, which they did. So uh, all 
top players for both teams played in this game, and Cincinnati came out on top. Um, Jamar Chase had like 266 yards and three touchdowns in that one, I think. So it was a good offensive show back and forth. Um, heading into this one, you know, the, the first two weeks of the pre or the postseason, rather, the Bengals have had uh, by far and away the better offense. Uh, they've, they were a better offensive team than Vegas and a better offensive team than Tennessee, especially at the skill positions and the quarterback spot. Uh, this is the first time this postseason that they are not coming into this game with an advantage on offense. Uh, obviously, the Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, um, you know, certainly are uh, just as good or better uh, than uh, Jamar Chase, uh, Joe Burrow, uh, to T. Higgins, you know, Tyler Boyd, that kind of stuff. So, uh, this game is going to be an offensive shootout. The last game was 34-31. I can see this game being similar in score. Um, I can see it being more points. I can see it being uh, maybe a few less points in the game. You know, Cincinnati's defense is not great, uh, but they do play disciplined football, and they keep getting it done. Um, they just seem to make plays when they need them, um, which, you know, the Chiefs uh, didn't really do in the last two minutes their uh, this past weekend's games, but we'll we'll have to see. The Chiefs' defense is capable of playing well, as they did throughout the entire second half of the year. So I think it's basically going to come down to, because both offenses can score at will, I think it's going to come down to which defense gets a stop. I think turnovers are going to be the key in this one. Um, neither quarterback has been uh, too loose with the football as of late. So it's going to come down to it. Now the game uh, has opened with, Kansas City as a seven-point favorite, which to me, that is very disrespectful to the Bengals and uh, Joe Shiesty, who has come out and said, we're not here for the underdog narrative. We want to come make some noise. And they just continue to prove everybody wrong. Uh, Kansas City, it's it's super hard to beat a good team twice in the same year, especially just a few weeks apart. Uh, the game is in Kansas City this time instead of Cincinnati. So I think that really comes into play. Um, Arrowhead was rocking the other night. Um, like I said, I can see this being an offensive shootout like it was in week 17, but, um, I'm picking Kansas city to beat Cincinnati in this game to reach their third consecutive Super Bowl, which is quite the feat in and of itself. But, uh, I want the football fan in me wants Cincinnati to, to win. I am rooting for Cincinnati, but my official pick and where I'd put my money is on Kansas City just because they've been there, they've done that, and uh, they know what it takes to get there. So it's just a matter of how much gas does Kansas City have left in the tank after that all-out brawl last week against the Bills. So uh, put me down for the Chiefs to win that game. And then over in the NFC, it's uh, an NFC West division showdown. Number six, San Francisco travels to SoFi Stadium to play the number four Los Angeles Rams. That game's at 6.30 Eastern on Sunday on Fox. And as I just mentioned, these two teams are NFC West's division rivals. They have played twice during the regular season, once in Week 10. That game was in San Francisco, and San Francisco won that one 31-10. And then again in the final week of the year, Week 18, just a few weeks ago, in Los Angeles, and San Francisco won that one 27-24 in overtime after they were down 17-3 to 
at halftime. So uh, we talked about that a couple episodes ago, just an amazing comeback by the 49ers and that one to clinch a playoff berth because if they had lost that game, they would have not even been in the playoffs. And here they sit uh, coming into uh, barely making the playoffs now to the NFC title game. Um, San Francisco has actually beaten Los Angeles the last six meetings. So uh, the Rams have not beaten the 49ers at all in the last three years. And uh, this is actually the fourth ever conference championship between division rivals. And the winner of the previous three division rematch conference championship games have gone on to win the Super Bowl. So history has indicated that the winner of this game will win the Super Bowl, but I'm not ready to go there quite yet. Uh, But uh, in week 18, that game in Los Angeles, there was an absolute sea of red. Tons of 49ers fans came down to L.A. to cheer on their team. Uh, and But in order to help combat that, this go-around, the Rams have gone an extra step to keeping it as many Rams fans as possible. By doing so, the Rams are actually limiting online ticket sales um, to be purchased with uh, credit cards and debit cards whose billing addresses have zip codes from 9000 uh, zero to nine three five nine nine, which is the greater Los Angeles area. So there, you cannot purchase tickets to this game online unless your credit card has a billing zip code in that range. So that's their um, tactic to try and keep the stadium as blue as possible instead of red. Now, SoFi Stadium, I mentioned, is the host of the Super Bowl here in a couple weeks, um, but it's also the host of the conference championship game here. Because uh, the Rams are playing. So SoFi Stadium is actually the first ever stadium in NFL history to host a conference championship game and a Super Bowl in the same season. And the Rams are looking to become the second team ever to play in a home Super Bowl. The first, very first time that that's happened was last year when the Buccaneers played uh, in the Super Bowl at Raymond James Stadium. Now that being said, this is San Francisco's fifth appearance in the NFC title game since the 2011 season, which is simply remarkable. Um, San Francisco is obviously a problem for the Rams. They have not beaten them in three years. Uh, The running game is insane. Debo Samuel is just doing what he does. Who knows what he is? Running back, wide receiver, kick returner. Doesn't just get the guy on the field, get the ball in his hands. Um, You know, the running game for San Francisco wasn't as much of an issue for Green Bay as it was Uh, in Dallas, but I think the weather had a lot to do with that. Either way, the 49ers have had the Rams number over the last three years. Uh, But that being said, that streak has got to stop at some point, and the Rams just have too much talent. Uh, The midseason acquisitions of Odell Beckham and Vaughn Miller just continue to prove that they're paying dividends. Uh, Of course, in the offseason last year, they traded two first-round picks to get Matthew Stafford in here, and all he's done is show exactly why they did that. Uh, the Rams gave up a ton of draft capital. Uh, it, it seems like the Rams, they don't have a first-round pick for the next three or four years, and I don't even know how many other draft picks they have left, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if the Rams didn't have a, uh, a draft pick till the turn of the century uh, coming up because they, they just continue to give it all away to go all in on this year, which is exactly what they've done. They put together this roster for this game. They got too much firepower on offense. They got Cam Akers back in the lineup. He's been look aside from his two fumbles last week, he's been looking good. Uh, and I think this is the year that the Rams 
get off the schneid on that over the 49ers. I am picking the Los Angeles Rams to beat the San Francisco 49ers and make it to the Super Bowl at their home stadium. So definitely going to be an exciting weekend of NFL football. Conference championship games are, are going to be both on Sunday like we talked about. So uh, I know all of you that like football, uh, just like me, that will definitely be tuned into that. So uh, mark me down for a Kansas City versus Los Angeles Super Bowl, and we'll have to uh, check back in next week and do a recap of how both of those games went down. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do a standings update there. But before we do, uh, last week we had talked that the NHL is going to stop the testing of asymptomatic players um, in a couple weeks after the All-Star break. So uh, players are still going to have to get tested before they go over to Canada to play games, which is just simply a requirement of the Canadian government. But nonetheless, that has allowed the NHL to revise their season schedule. And the NHL officially announced makeup dates for all 98 of the postponed games so far this season. Uh, 95 of those 98 games are going to be played during the 16-day window between February 7th and February 22nd, which was originally slotted for the Olympic break. But since NHL players are not participating in the Olympics, that two weeks will be used now to make up uh, 95 of those 98 games. But um, the NHL also did say that uh, teams are going to complete their full season schedules by the original April 29th closing date. So there will be no delay to the end of the NHL season, which is good. Uh, and on that COVID front, the Ontario government in Canada has announced that starting February 21st, both the Ottawa Senators and the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to be allowed to return to 50% capacity uh, at their venues, and then on March 14th, they can return to full capacity. Uh, Ottawa, in that time frame, has 15 home games, and uh, Toronto has 10, so they'll at least have some fans in for the remaining uh, handful of games there they have at home. But the standings update in the NHL, uh, most teams have played uh, between 40 to 43 games or so. Some teams have played uh, 37, 38 games, but that'll all get worked out and caught up here in a couple of weeks. But we're going to do a wild card standings update. Basically, I'll give you the three teams in each division uh, and then the top two teams, top few teams in the wild card spots that are in contention. Uh, that's just with the NHL, the top three teams in each division make the playoffs, and then the highest two wild card teams make the playoffs. So over in the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division, the New York Rangers are 28 11 and 4. Uh, they're two game winning streak. They're hanging on to that first spot over the Pittsburgh Penguins, who are 27-10-5 on a six-game winning streak. They've won eight out of their last ten. They've got Evgeny Malkin back. Uh, they're looking really strong. Um, Pittsburgh, uh, they were kind of lower in the standings for much of the early part of the season, but they are charging back now. Uh, the Carolina Hurricanes are third in the Metropolitan, 28-9-2. Over in the Atlantic Division, the Florida Panthers are 29-9-5. Tampa Bay Lightning are 28-10-5. And, and the Toronto Maple Leafs are 25-10-3. All three of those teams have won seven out of their last ten. Uh, looking really good there, really solid in the Atlantic. In the wild card, the top two teams in the wild card at the moment are the Washington Capitals and the Boston Bruins. Washington 
is 23-11-9. They've only won three out of their last ten. Now, they had a game last week against Boston in which Boston scored in the final minute to win the game. That was the fifth time this year that the Capitals have lost a game by giving up a goal in the final minute, which uh, is the most in the NHL, and it's also was their 14th loss uh, this season by mo- uh, by one goal, which is second to the Buffalo Sabres. Buffalo has the most in the league at 15. Washington has 14 one-goal losses, and then Anaheim has 13. So uh, Washington's played a lot of close games, but they still certainly have the talent to be in the mix for the playoffs. Uh, the second wildcard team, as I mentioned, Boston Bruins, 24-13 at two. They've won seven out of their last ten. Uh, just on the outskirts right now, in contention for a wild card, there's really only a few teams that have a legit chance. The Detroit Red Wings are 18-18 at six. Uh, Columbus Blue Jackets are 18-20 and one, um, and then the New York Islanders are 15-14 and six. They've won seven out of their last ten, kind of making a comeback from the bottom of the standings. So those are really the only teams: uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Ottawa, and Montreal. Uh, probably aren't making the playoffs this year. Uh, over in the Western Conference, the Central Division, Colorado Avalanche are 29-8-3. and uh, They've won seven in a row, nine out of their last ten, and they have a 14-game home winning streak, which is just insane. Uh, they're the best team in the Western Conference. This is what we expected the Avalanche to be at the start of the year. Uh, they've gotten their woes fixed, clearly. Um, they're just dominant right now. The Nashville Predators are second in the Central at 27-14-3. They've won three in a row. St. Louis Blues are third, 25-12-5. Over in the Pacific Division, Vegas Golden Knights are 25-15-5. Anaheim Ducks are second, 21-16-7. And the Los Angeles Kings have put together a really solid year. A really young team there in L.A., but they are continuing to play good hockey. They're 21-16-6. And And then the wild card spots right now are occupied by the Minnesota Wild and the Dallas Stars. Minnesota's 25-10-3. They've won three in a row. Dallas is 22-16-2. They've won four in a row. Now they just swept a four-game road trip after losing at home to a horrible Montreal team. Dallas uh, won road games against Buffalo, Detroit, Philadelphia, and New Jersey. So they've swept the four-game road trip. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned last week, the Stars, I'm a huge Stars fan. They're my favorite team. But I, I caution you you fellow Stars fans because there's a three- or four-game losing streak on the horizon. That is just what the Stars do. They play good hockey, then they play bad hockey, then they play good hockey. Um, they're going to finish around 500 for the season. And uh, that's just, I've seen too many Stars games over the last decade and almost a half. So um, they're playing good hockey right now, and hopefully they continue to win. But um, I'm not going to be surprised if we're sitting here next week and I'm talking about a four-game Dallas losing streak. Uh, The teams in contention for the uh, wildcard spots in the West, Calgary Flames, 19-12-6. San Jose Sharks, 21-19-2. They just got some bad news, though. Um, their defenseman, Eric Carlson, had surgery on his uh, forearm to repair an injury, and he'll be out for two months. So Eric Carlson's going to miss the rest, uh, most of the rest of the regular season. If all goes well, he might be back uh, towards the end, but either way, that's a tough blow for the Sharks. 
Uh, Edmonton is 2016 and two. Uh, they finally won a couple games in a row, and then Winnipeg is 17, 15, and seven. Vancouver Canucks are 18, 19, and five. They're probably the last team that has a legitimate chance for a wild card spot. I don't see Chicago, Seattle, or Arizona competing, but uh, we're a little over halfway point. Some teams haven't quite made it to that 42 game halfway mark, uh, but a lot of the teams have. So we're roughly halfway through the NHL season, and uh, things are really going to get ramped up here in a couple weeks once we get that uh, that two week window where they're making up a lot of games. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association, do a standings update in the NBA, and we'll do it similarly to the NHL, uh, where as in the NBA, the top 10 teams in each conference make the playoffs or the play-in tournament, with the top six seeds getting a playoff spot and seeds seven through 10 getting in the play-in tournament. So we'll cover those 10 spots, plus a couple of the teams in contention for those spots in each conference. And we'll start off in the Eastern Conference. The Miami Heat are up top there at 30 and 17. They've won seven out of their last 10. The Chicago Bulls are 29 and 17. They've only won three times in their last 10 games, and they've gotten some bad news. They've lost two guards. Uh, Lonzo Ball, he underwent arthroscopic left knee surgery. He's going to be out six to eight weeks. Obviously a big blow for the Bulls. He's one of their top players, starter. And he's if all goes well, he should be back towards uh, the end of the regular season, uh, which is the same thing for Alex Caruso, who had broken his wrist when he took a flagrant foul from Bucks player Grayson Allen this past week. Uh, that... Uh, wrist fracture is going to cause Caruso to have surgery and he'll be out six to eight weeks as well. So him and Lonzo Ball are both going to be kind of on similar uh, timelines to return towards the end of the season. Now Grayson Allen for the Bucks was suspended one game for that flagrant foul, uh, but nonetheless the Bulls uh, need to stay afloat here in the East. The Brooklyn Nets are third at 29 and 18. They've lost two in a row and obviously we talked last week about Durant being gone a month with a knee sprain, but James Harden has really picked up his play. Uh, this past week he got his fourth 30-point triple-double of the season, which is the most in the NBA so far. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks are 30-19 and 19 at number four. Uh, number five, Cleveland Cavaliers, 29-19. and 19. They've won eight out of their last ten. Philadelphia 76ers are sixth at 28-19. and 19. And this past week, their center, Joel Embiid, had a game where he scored 50 points. And now he only played 27 minutes, which is the second fewest minutes to reach 50 points in the shot clock era. So just a complete dominating performance by him. Number seven in the East, the Charlotte Hornets at 26 and 22. They've won seven out of their last 10. The Toronto Raptors are the eighth seed currently at 23 and 22. And then the Boston Celtics are the ninth seed at 25 and 24. Now, this past week, Jason Tatum for the Celtics, he also had a 50-point game, 51 to be exact. And it was his fifth 50-point game of his career, which passed Larry Bird for the most 50-point games all-time in Boston Celtics franchise history. So that's pretty cool for Tatum. Uh, but they're ninth in the East. The 10th seed currently, the Washington Wizards, at 23-25. and 25. They've lost four in a row, including a gut-wrenching loss last uh, 
night or two ago against the Clippers, and we'll get into that and around the island. So that's the first team out of the play-in tournament at the moment. It's the New York Knicks in the 11th seed at 23-25, and 25, same record as the Wizards. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks are 21-25. and 25. They're on a four-game winning streak. And then really the only other team that will be in contention uh, in the Eastern Conference is the Indiana Pacers at 17-31. and 31. Uh, The Detroit Pistons and Orlando Magic uh, are not going to be in the playoff mix. Over in the Western Conference, the Phoenix Suns continue to just roll uh, 37-9. and nine. They've won seven in a row, nine out of their last ten. Golden State Warriors are 35-13. and 13. They've won three games in a row. Uh, they have Klay Thompson, Steph Curry back. I know Draymond Green should probably miss another week or so before he returns with his back issue, but uh, that team is still very potent. Memphis Grizzlies are third in the West at 32-17. and 17. Utah Jazz are fourth at 30-18. and 18. They've only won twice in their last 10 games, though. They're on a bit of a slide. Dallas Mavericks are fifth at 27-21. and 21. Uh, They've won seven out of their last ten. They're playing some good basketball. Luka Doncic, uh, he had his, last week, he had his 40th and 41st career triple doubles uh, in just 267 games. It took him to get 40 career triple doubles, which is the second fewest amount of games needed in NBA history to reach 40 career triple doubles, uh, only behind Oscar Robertson, who did that in 86 games. Uh, The sixth seed in the West is the Denver Nuggets at 25 and 21. They've also won seven out of their last ten, and the Minnesota Timberwolves are seventh at 24 and 23. Now, they, from where they were at a year or two ago to where they're at now, is just very impressive. Uh, good turnaround for them. The most surprising team in the Western Conference is number eight, and that's the Los Angeles Lakers. They're 24 and 24, uh, and they uh, have just been playing 500 over the last. Uh, 10 games, and they got Anthony Davis back the other night, so he's healthy, he's playing now. Uh, LeBron became the only player in NBA history to have 30,000 points, 10,000 rebounds, and 9,000 assists. And then Russell Westbrook uh, last week got benched in the final couple minutes of the game by Frank Vogel, which started some drama, so we'll see how that ends up. But the Lakers being in eighth is horribly surprising, uh, disappointing, rather, but I don't think anybody would have predicted that they would be 548 games into the season. Uh, the ninth seed in the West is the Los Angeles Clippers at 24-25. and 25. Uh, They beat the Wizards in a wild game that we'll get to in around the island here shortly. Uh, Portland Trailblazers are 10th at 20-27, and 27. and then the first team out of the mix at the moment is the New Orleans Pelicans at 18-29. and 29. San Antonio Spurs are 18-30, and 30. And then the Sacramento Kings are 18-31. and 31. They've lost four in a row. They've only won twice in their last 10. And uh, those are the probably the only teams in contention. I don't see the Oklahoma City Thunder or the Houston Rockets being in contention for the play-in tournament spot. So, um, like, the NHL has, I said, about 38 to 43 games played for each team. Uh, the NBA is about 45 to... 48 games played so they're slightly ahead of the NHL in terms of number of games played for each team but uh, NHL should even that out here uh, in this little two-week gap the first couple weeks of February so a lot of basketball to be played and uh, we'll definitely uh, check back in next week with another standings update
But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And we'll start off in the National Football League. And I find it very interesting that we haven't heard of any positive COVID tests in the NFL since the playoffs have started. Uh, they, it was running rampant in the league uh, in the regular season. It didn't matter if you were uh, big-name players such as Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes. You weren't uh, e- exempt from a positive test. But now here, since we've been in the playoffs, you haven't heard of any positive tests. Now, the league did stop daily testing for unvaccinated players, but 95% of the league's players are vaccinated and almost 100% of the staff members are vaccinated. So um, they're not testing daily for unvaccinated, but that's only 5% of the league. Now, uh, you know, I'm sure the NFL doesn't want to uh, determine the outcome of any of these playoff games due to a positive test. So if the players are testing positive, it would not surprise me if they are just throwing those tests out not reporting those, uh, especially with the competitive divisional round, the absolute insane divisional round that we just saw this last weekend. You take any one of the big-name players out of those games, and uh, that's going to determine the outcome of the game. So I don't think the NFL is wanting to throw any controversy out there into the universe. So, But I just found it very interesting that uh, COVID tests, at least the positive ones, have not been a factor here in the playoffs. But uh, over the past few episodes, we've talked about Uh, the general manager, and coaching vacancies that have come open. Uh, There's been a few of them that have been filled. The New York Giants have hired their general manager. Uh, They hired Buffalo Bills assistant general manager Joe Schoen to be their new GM. Uh, Schoen is only 42 years old. He's been with Buffalo since 2017. So he's helped build the Bills into a formidable AFC opponent that they've become with Josh Allen uh, over the last few years. Uh, The Chicago Bears have also hired their general manager. They hired Ryan Poles to be their GM. Poles has been serving as the executive director of player development for the Kansas City Chiefs over the last few years, and he's helped develop that Chiefs team uh, into the team that it's become, making its fourth consecutive AFC Conference Championship game appearance. So uh, the Bears are in desperate need of help. And Poles uh, certainly has done well with his player development uh, there in Kansas City. So that should be a good hire. Now, this one hasn't been officially confirmed, but reports are that Jacksonville Jaguars are expected to name Byron Leftwich as their new head coach. Now, Byron Leftwich has been serving as the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the last uh, three seasons since 2019. He's had pretty good success. Now, obviously, a lot of that's due to Tom Brady, um, but uh, Leftwich has some history with the Jaguars. Of course, you remember he was drafted out of Marshall with the seventh overall pick of the 2003 draft, and he went on to start 44 games for the Jaguars at quarterback. So uh, he does have a history with the Jaguars. So good for Leftwich. He's one of those up-and-coming names that, that's been talked about. So he'll uh, it's reporting uh, reported that he'll get his crack to be a head coach there in Jacksonville to replace Urban Meyer. The Carolina Panthers, they have hired Ben McAdoo as their offensive coordinator. Uh, McAdoo is the former head coach of the New York Giants, spent two seasons there, spent this last year uh, as a Dallas Cowboys offensive consultant. So he had a little little role there in Dallas this year, but Ben McAdoo is now the offensive coordinator in Carolina. 
surprising firing was the Baltimore Ravens. They fired defensive coordinator Don Wink Martindale. And the Ravens uh, did so because they became the first team in the past 19 years to go from being the number one seed in the conference the year before, to f- or at least halfway through the season, to failing to make the playoffs at the end of the season. And Baltimore fell to 25th in the league in points and yards allowed after leading the league in points and yards allowed each of the last, uh, well, over the past three seasons, which is when Wink Martindale has been there. Uh, they've only been averaging, uh, giving up 18 points a game and 307 yards a game uh, in that those categories But uh, since Martindale's been there. but So they fired Wink Martindale, so that's a, that's a pretty appealing defensive coordinator job that's now available. But the breaking news from the coaching front came to us via the New Orleans Saints, and that's head coach Sean Payton. He announced that he is stepping down as the Saints coach. And in his press conference, he still has three years left on his contract. And in his press conference, he said that his heart just isn't in it anymore to coach, which he also went on to say that driving to the games, he would see uh, tailgates and he would think to himself that those people are having more fun than him. And obviously over the last couple years, the Saints haven't been the same team since, you know, well, this year anyways, Drew Brees' last year was, was the season ago, and they've been a perennial playoff team with Drew Brees. But uh, the Saints are more of a rebuild project now than they are a perennial contender. Uh, so I can understand why Peyton just isn't quite in it. Now, Sean Peyton's been the coach of the Saints for the last 16 seasons. He's gone 152-89, and 20, 21st most wins in NFL coaching history. He's got nine 10-win seasons, nine playoff wins, and he won a Super Bowl back in 2009. So interesting to see what he does there. Now, there's been a lot of rumor about the Dallas Cowboys going to get Sean Payton. So this is just the break they needed. Now, the problem is, is as I mentioned, Payton is still under contract for the next three seasons. So if he were to go anywhere else in that time frame, the team that uh, would acquire Sean Payton would have to give up some kind of compensation to the Saints, probably a draft pick and maybe a contract buyout, something like that. Uh, I don't anticipate that Sean Payton will coach this year, but I do believe that if he takes a year off, it's very likely that he could be the next head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, especially if Mike McCarthy cannot get it done uh, this upcoming year. Uh, Moving over to the NHL, the Vancouver Canucks, they have hired a new assistant general manager, and it is Emily Castingway. She was hired for the position and becomes the first female general manager in Vancouver Canucks history. And they've said that her role is going to be to handle player contracts and negotiations as well as manage the collective bargaining agreement. Now, she has previously been a lawyer. She has her bar card, and she's also served as a player agent uh, in addition to her hockey playing experience. So we're starting to see a lot more player agents get hired in front office roles for teams, and I think that trend is going to continue. Uh, She's younger, she's pretty relatable, so I think she'll probably do a pretty good job where she's at. Um, Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Keith Yandel, he set a new NHL record for most consecutive games played with 965. So he is the new Ironman, and that's just very impressive. You think about how physically demanding the sport of hockey is if you've never played uh, it is probably the most physically demanding sport. And uh, to play in 965 career games is quite 
the accomplishments. So Keith Yandel is now the new Iron Man in terms of that. Now, Minnesota wild forward Kirill Kaprizov, he just amassed his 100th career NHL point, and he did so in only 92 games, which ties Connor McDavid for the fourth fewest amount of games needed to get to 100 points in NHL history. The three people in front of him are Evgeny Malkin, who did it in 89 games, Sidney Crosby did it in 80 games, and Alex Ovechkin did it in 77 games. So pretty elite company that Kaprizov just joined. Over in Major League Baseball, uh, we're still in the lockout, but the good news is this past week the two sides met, and the MLBPA made a proposal to the MLB, and while there was no agreement, the MLB counter-offered the proposal and indicated that it is open to a new pre-arbitration bonus pool. And upon hearing that news, the MLBPA dropped their demand to change the way free agency is conducted. So this is good news. Uh, there's, there's no agreement in place, um, but things are heading in the right direction, obviously. Uh, there can only be so many counter-offers before something's got to give and we have a match. So we're just over a month away from pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training. So uh, that'll be interesting to see how that continues. Um, at this point, I would expect something to get done before the end of February. Uh, that's just strictly a gut feeling, just based on the way that it's gone down. Uh, but some other MLB news. The Tampa Bay Rays, they had sent in a proposal to Major League Baseball to play half of their home games at Tropicana Field in Tampa Bay, which is their home field, and half of their home games in Montreal, Quebec. And, you know, the Rays haven't gotten very good fan support over the last several years, even though they've been a really good team. It's just not a great market for baseball. Uh, but MLB shut that plan down, so uh, the Rays are, are trying to figure out. Uh, they're very into, their owner is very into the idea of a split home season between Tampa and somewhere else. I just don't know of any other major market that would pick up on that. Uh, but the biggest news probably out of Major League Baseball, aside from the lockout news, is that uh, the MLB announced that they're going to be using robot home plate umpires uh, or testing those out in AAA baseball this year, which is the highest minor league uh, system. And the teams, there's been a handful of teams that are slated to use this automated strike zone experiment it's the Albuquerque Isotopes, the Charlotte Knights, the El Paso Chihuahuas, the Las Vegas Aviators, Oklahoma City Dodgers, Reno Aces, Round Rock Express, Sacramento Rivercats, Salt Lake Bees, Sugarland Skeeters, and Tacoma Rainiers. And the technology itself of letting a computer call balls and strikes was first used in the independent Atlantic League in the All-Star Game in 2019. It was also experimented in 2019 in the Arizona Fall League. Now, there were no uses of this technology back last year in the COVID season, uh, but I think it's a good idea. Not really sure. I'm surprised baseball hasn't done this sooner. Uh, that might be the sport with the most uh, discretion in terms of its officials. Certainly, there's a human element to officiating in every sport, but baseball, you know, games can be won or lost on a ball or a strike, uh, and, and the width of the strike zone. So uh, we know what the strike zone is. You see, if you watch a baseball game, and you, you see they'll have a box up on the, on the screen, and it'll show where the pitch is going. So I'm not sure 
why they haven't thought of using this technology before. I think it would make for a, obviously a more accurate calling or officiating of the games uh, with regards to balls and strikes. So I'm curious to see how that does in AAA this year and if that is going to become a thing here in the MLB itself. But over in the NBA, uh, I mentioned that game between the Clippers and the Wizards from the other night, and it was a record comeback. Basically, the Clippers were down by 35 points to the Washington Wizards, and as the game wound down, they got it closer. Clippers were down by seven points late in the game. With nine seconds left, Luke Kennard hit a three-pointer to bring the deficit to four. Washington inbounded the ball and got a uh, five-second violation. So the Clippers actually got the ball back with 1.9 seconds left. Luke Kennard drained another three-pointer, and he was fouled when he shot it. So that gave Kennard a free throw, which he made to complete the four-point play, ended the game, gave the Clippers a comeback win. Just a wild series there in that game. Entering that game, NBA teams as a whole had a record of 1 in 16,239 over the last 20 seasons when they trailed by seven or more points with under 20 seconds to go in regulation. So the Clippers are just the second team in the last 20 years to erase a seven-point deficit with under 20 seconds to go. Just a wild, wild sequence there. Um, But we'll move over to college football. Of course, transfer portals still... Just as hot as it's ever been. Uh, Last week I mentioned uh, some other transfer portal news. This week, Georgia wide receiver Jermaine Burton. He's fresh off of a national championship. Uh, He announced that he's entered the transfer portal, and uh, so too is former five-star quarterback JT Daniels. Both of them are leaving Georgia. Uh, Daniels got hurt this year, lost his job to Stetson Bennett after he transferred there from USC. So this will be Daniel's third school in three years. Uh, his career is spiraling downward at a ridiculous rate. Uh, and then Jermaine Burton, he did not take long to make his decision. He is, believe it or not, he is transferring from Georgia over to Alabama. Um, Burton's a starter at Georgia. I'm not really sure why he's going to Bama. I know Bama's losing Mechie, John Mechie and Jamison Williams to the draft. Um, so you would presume that Uh, Jermaine Burton is probably going to be either uh, the top option or the second option in that Bama offense, which is what exactly what he was at Georgia. So uh, again, that doesn't make sense to me, but uh, to each their own, I suppose. My Texas Longhorns, they uh, continue to have some success in that transfer portal. They have secured the commitment from wide receiver Isaiah Nayer. Nayer was originally a two-star recruit from Arlington, Texas. He went to Wyoming had a breakout year this past year, 44 catches, 878 yards, and 12 touchdowns. He earned all Mountain West Conference honors. And now, after entering the transfer portal a couple weeks ago, Nayer had originally committed to Tennessee. But then he took an impromptu trip to Austin, met with Sarkeesian, Steve Sarkeesian, and uh, just loved what he saw. And uh, so that's a big ad for the Texas Longhorns on offense who desperately need help at wide receiver So I'm interested to see that kid, Isaiah Nair, come in and compete for a starting job. But then, of course, it wouldn't be uh, a transfer portal 
news segment without some Caleb Williams news. Former Oklahoma quarterback was seemingly on his way to USC just a couple weeks ago after he spent the weekend there uh, visiting L.A. and Lincoln Riley. Uh, But last week, LSU came out and it has emerged as a strong candidate. Uh, But this past week, a third school has come into the mix, and that school is Wisconsin. Uh, Reports are that Wisconsin has seriously entered the conversation for for Caleb Williams. Now, just based off of his relationship with Lincoln Riley, um, I don't see Williams ending up anywhere but USC. So I'll be very surprised to see how this goes. But hopefully we have a, a decision here soon because it's, it's getting kind of tedious talking about Caleb Williams and all these rumors. Uh, he just needs to pick somewhere and go. I mean, he's going to start anywhere he goes. So it's just a matter of where he wants to play and what gives him the best chance for success. And frankly, my opinion is that's USC. But uh, we'll wrap up the Around the Island segment with some women's college basketball news. Uh, Kansas State player Ioka Lee, she, in a game this past week against 14th-ranked Oklahoma, set the NCAA D1 women's basketball record for points in a single game. Uh, she had 61 points in that win, upset win over Oklahoma. Uh, she just dominated. Um, I, th- I think she only missed like two shots from the field. Um, I saw the highlights of that game, just simply incredible. So she put up 61 there, and um, yeah, congrats to her on that. That was unbelievable. Uh, but that is going to wrap up this episode. Uh, we have a lot of good football this weekend. Of course, uh, two games, two massive games, the conference championship games. I'll be tuned in to both of those, as I know you will. So next week's episode, we'll have a recap on that. And we'll go over the Farmers Insurance Open at Torrey Pines and how that went down. And then, of course, we'll do our regular standings updates in the NHL and the NBA. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.